Hello and welcome to Oddments. Triskaidekaphobics, beware, this is the 13th episode of Oddments. I'm your host, Jeff Wagg, coming to you from the College of Curiosity. This week, we'll explore the mystery of the fool killer, listen to a water phone, explore some unusual things about beavers, go to war with Albert Cashier, and drive like we're in a 1980s video game. Mystery of the Fool Killer In December 1915, diver William Deneau was laying cable when he stubbed his toe on something. He was 12 feet below the surface of the Chicago River at the time, and being trained in the recovery of underwater objects, he felt around to see what he'd stumbled across. An old barrel? A sunken boat? What he found surprised him. After reaching the surface, he exclaimed, Why didn't someone tell me I was working in a war zone? For what he had found, he believed, was a submarine. In fact, the United States employed dozens of submarines during World War I, but why would they have one in the Chicago River, 1,000 miles from the Atlantic coast? The object was pulled up from the mud, and it clearly wasn't part of the U.S. Navy. And there the mystery begins. Upon cleaning out the mud from the inside of the school bus-sized vessel, bones were found of a man and a dog. Presumably this was the pilot and his trusty companion. But who could it be? Some claim that the vessel must have been built by Peter Nissen, who was a known adventurer and experimental watercraft builder. After surviving two trips over Niagara Falls, he died after crashing a giant rolling balloon that traveled across Lake Michigan. So it may have been his boat, but it certainly wasn't his bones. Nissen had named his known craft, none of which were submarines, Fool Killers, and the name carried over to this new mystery craft. Another candidate was a vessel constructed by Laudner Phillips, who was known to have built several crude craft that were propelled by wooden legs sticking through the bottom. Some of the drawings look like the object Deneau pulled from the river, so maybe this identifies it. If so, why no record of a submarine sinking with someone and his dog inside? The papers offered scant coverage of the recovery, which seems odd considering how unusual it was. So what does one do with a recently recovered mystery submarine? One puts it in the carnival, of course. The fool killer toured with Parker's Greatest Shows along with the bones for a while. Flyers displayed an illustration of the vehicle sitting on the bottom with fish swimming around. After leaving Iowa, the vessel was put on display, at least briefly, at Chicago's famed Riverview Park. And then it disappears from the record. No one knows where it is now or what happened to it. As with many large metal objects during World War I, it may have been scrapped for the war effort. Or it may have been put in storage where its identity was forgotten and then it was treated as an old boiler. We may never know. There is some reason to think that this was all a hoax, however. William Deneau had a reputation for being dishonest and he had access to human skeletons. He was the diver who recovered the bodies when the Eastland capsized at its pier earlier that same year and not far from where the fool killer was found. One thing that is true, though, there were submarines in and around the river. Some people used the Great Lakes as a proving ground for their experimental designs. Perhaps we'll find some other fool killers out there. You've just heard a small clip from the X-Files episode, Irresistible, which aired in 1995. 
It's the story of a serial killer who collects trophies, and the music is appropriately spooky. That eerily familiar sound has graced many a film, including Star Trek The Motion Picture, Aliens, and the Scandinavian vampire flick Let the Right One In. It's produced by a very unusual instrument called a waterphone. Invented by Richard Waters, it consists of two metal pans welded together and surrounded by metal rods of different heights. Each rod is tuned to a different note, and they can be played with rubber mallets or a violin bow. What creates the strange sound, though, is actual water, which sits between the two pans. As it sloshes about, it changes the resonance of the tone, which creates a sense of foreboding in many people. Here's the sound without any music. Until his death in 2013, Richard Waters hand-built every waterphone, some of which sold for as much as $1,200. Several other people produced replicas, but none produced quite the same sound. Richard Waters, whose name is a coincidence, performed musical compositions with the instrument. But perhaps the most amazing application was for interspecies communication. The device functions perfectly underwater, and has been used to call whales on more than one occasion. These experiments are the subject of a stage show, The Boy Who Wanted to Talk to Whales, by the Robert Minden Ensemble. Should you wish to purchase one of these for yourself, there may be some still available at waterphone.com. But now that Richard's gone, expect the prices to go up like icy fingers on your spine. Beaver Facts Beavers have made a remarkable recovery and are becoming a common sight in many parts of the U.S. They are unusual creatures that are either very industrious or very destructive, depending on your perspective. Here are some things you may not have known about beavers. Yes, it's true, their teeth really do keep growing. They are required to gnaw on things, lest their teeth get out of control. There are records of dead beavers found with their teeth curled around their jaws, effectively making them useless. Beavers are compelled by the sound of running water. If they hear it, they will try to build a dam. This is a problem for urban planners, as culverts typically make the same sound as a small stream. Upon hearing this sound, beavers fill up the pipes with sticks, causing flooding. One solution is to build beaver-proof grating, but beavers are persistent and often find their way around such impediments. Beavers can be deadly. Though they're only the size of a small to medium dog, their teeth are sharp and they can easily sever an artery. People have died recently after altercations with beavers. Though known mostly for their distinctive flat tails, beavers are rare among mammals for another reason. They have cloacas. That is, like birds, they have only one exit from their body for elimination and reproduction. They also use this pore for the secretion of two different glands, one that produces oil to waterproof their fur and the other to scent mark their territory. 
The scent gland is harvested for use as a perfume base and a food additive. It lends a vanilla or raspberry-like flavor to foods, though the chemical is most often synthesized today. If it is used in food, you probably won't know it. It's legal to label it simply as natural flavoring. Castorium, as it's called, is also used to flavor cigarettes. For religious reasons, beavers are considered fish. In the Catholic religion, eating meat is forbidden during certain times of the year. Fish is permitted. This put pressure on pioneers who had an unsteady food supply, so the church, noticing that beavers spent most of their time in the water, declared that they were fish and a sanctioned food source during Lent. The capybara is also included in this odd category of mammalian fish. And yes, whale meat is allowed as well. And one last note, if you think of a beaver skin cap, you might think of something along the lines of Daniel Boone or Davy Crockett. But what you really should be thinking of is President Lincoln. His top hat was made of beaver fur. Albert Cashier Albert Cashier was born in Ireland on Christmas Day, 1843. His early history is fuzzy due to his failing memory when his story was recorded, but it is known that on August 6, 1862, he enlisted in the 95th Illinois Infantry using the name Albert Cashier. That is somewhat unusual since his name at birth was Jenny Irene Hodgers. Jenny was not short for Jennifer. It was his name. It was a girl's name because his parents thought he was a girl. He looked like a girl to them, but as he aged, he determined that he was a man, and as such, he wanted to join the troops and fight in the war between the states. And fight he did, in forty battles. He was even captured, but overpowered his guards and escaped. Of course, it wasn't permitted for people with female bodies to participate in the army, but they were desperate for new recruits and likely didn't provide a close examination. Albert found ways around all the obvious methods of detection, and in fact, he was detected and sent back home at least once. But he returned and was finally mustered out after the war ended in August of 1865. He continued to live as a man despite the appearance of his body for the rest of his life, until he was hit by a car in 1910. Upon examination, the doctors noticed that Albert had a female body. Fortunately for Albert, they kept his secret and arranged for him to live in the Soldiers and Sailors Home in Quincy, Illinois. Sadly, when his mind started going, he was moved to the Watertown State Hospital, where a bath revealed that he did not look like a man when he was naked. From then on, the hospital forced Albert to live as a woman, wearing dresses, until his death in 1915. What we've learned from this story is that people with women's bodies fought in the Civil War and likely all wars. And while you may be curious as to why a woman would want to live as a man, consider Albert and how curious it would be to be a man with a woman's body. Words can be tricky, and it seems like our words aren't sufficient to relate to Albert, but there's no question that Albert knew who he was, and there's no reason for us to think he was wrong. Smart Roads It's popular to show images of the Earth from space at night. We can see our vast cities glowing and appreciate how much humans have altered the planet. 
but consider for a moment how much energy is needed to produce those images. All that light going into space is wasted. The Dutch designer Dan Roosgaard has an idea for saving some of that energy. Turn off all the streetlights on highways. But what about safety? He has an idea for that too. Don't light the roads from big high-powered light bulbs. Make them glow in the dark. And recently in the city of Oss, he did just that. Dubbed the Smart Highway Project, the first test was with glowing lane markers that gave off a mint green luminescence, reminiscent of old-school vector video games. During the day, the power source for the lines charged themselves with solar power. Future ideas include paint that would react to temperature, such as images of snowflakes that only appear when the road is below freezing. There's no word on how he'll solve our pothole problems. That's it for this week. Thank you very much for listening. And thanks to Steve and Martin for some of this week's oddments. For show notes and more oddments, visit collegeofcuriosity.com.